0: If you'll open your Bible, please, to the book of Acts, chapter number two, I want to talk to you this morning about how to experience the power of Pentecost in your life. Now, that's an interesting sentence, and there are two key words there that I want us to think about before we get into this. First of all is the word power. God wants us to have power in our, in our lives each day. And so today, if you, as you think about your life, I wonder how much power you would say that you have in your life. On a scale from one to 10, how much spiritual power do you have in your life? When you're going through a difficult time, how much power do you have to kind of rise above that and, and to, to maintain your faith and maintain your peace and maintain your joy? How much, how much power do you have? How much power do you have when it comes to witnessing and, and sharing your faith in Christ with others? You know, God is blessing our church in such an amazing way. I was looking at our bulletin this morning and then I add the decisions that we've just seen after the first service. Would you believe to the glory of God since the first of this year, we have seen 245 people get saved at First Baptist? 245. And in the new members in the family room each week is people are coming in and this happened last week with several of our students. A student has made a decision for the Lord and they're inviting a family member or a friend and they're coming with them and and there's a certain power about that. And so how much power do you how much power do you have in your life, for example, to love somebody that you think is not very lovely? Or maybe they're just hard to love. Rick Warren says that some people are what he calls EGR people, extra grace required. And I think sometimes we're all like that, but sometimes we're dealing with others and they're like that. And do you have power when when you're trying to to love somebody who's maybe not easy to love at that moment? Or how about when you face temptation? How much power do you have to resist temptation? I was at a meal recently. There were 10 of us around a table. It had been a delicious meal, one of the best meals I ever had. And when we finished eating, I said to myself, I've eaten so much food tonight, I don't need to have any dessert. But when they started bringing the desserts around and everybody started ordering, I didn't want to appear to be rude. So I said, I have to participate in the dessert part of this. And there were three options, lemon cake, red velvet cake, and some other cake that was funny looking. I didn't really know what it was. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna order the lemon cake. It's vitamin C and it's basically like eating fruit. And so I'll just do that. And they brought it out and it was wonderful. But you know, by the time the dessert time was over, I had eaten not only the, the lemon cake, I had had some red velvet cake and some of the unidentified cake. I had eaten all three of the cakes. And that's okay sometimes to do that after a meal to splurge like that. That's not a serious deal, maybe. If you do it all the time, it could be, but not that night it wasn't serious. But I think about out there in life, for example, how do you do when it comes to resisting sexual temptation? Or maybe resisting the temptation students in a class to cheat on a test when maybe you didn't do your homework and you didn't study like you should have. Or maybe the temptation sometime to, to criticize another person or to gossip behind somebody's back or to slander somebody's good name. How do you do resisting those types of temptation? I just have been asking myself this week, how, am I doing, how much spiritual power do I have in my life? In First Thessalonians chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power. How much power do you have in your life? And then the second word is the word Pentecost. Now, for many of us today who've spent time in the church, we, we've heard that word Pentecost. You may not really know what it is. Some here today have never heard the word Pentecost in all of your life. But what, what is Pentecost? Well, that is a Greek word that describes a Jewish feast. Back in Bible times, especially, it could still happen today to a lesser extent, but in Bible times, 50 days after the Passover, Jews from all over the world traveled to Jerusalem. And the reason they traveled there was to make an offering to God, to give a sacrifice to God. All spring long, they had been growing their crops and About 50 days after Passover, the wheat had come in and the barley had come in and they would take that to Jerusalem and they would, it was the first fruits offering and they would offer that to God. And so in Acts chapter two, which is where we are this morning, we find Jewish people from all over the known world gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And a very interesting thing happens. Let's begin reading in verse number one. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord In one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one of them sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this whole idea of speaking in tongues is an interesting idea, and as we continue reading, we learn more about it. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And so what happened here at Pentecost is that when the Holy Spirit came upon these early disciples, God gave them the supernatural ability to begin to speak in tongues. In other words, they were speaking in languages they had never learned in all their life. It would be like today if we got on an airplane and flew to Germany. And there we get off in Frankfurt, Germany, and we get out, and we're going into the, to the market area downtown, and we see all these German people. And in our hearts, we, we think, I wonder if these people are saved. I wonder if these German-speaking people have ever heard of Jesus. And we think, I would love to be able to share John three sixteen with them. I would love to be able to tell them how they can come to know God in a personal way, and yet we think, I don't know German. I've never studied that language. And supernaturally, out of the blue, unexplainably, God gives us the ability to begin to speak German words, German sentences, German languages. We've never taken German, and now we're speaking in German. What are we doing? We're speaking in other tongues. And now those Germans gathered around are hearing the gospel in their own language and many of them are saved. Well, this is exactly what was happening on the day of Pentecost. These these disciples, these Galilean disciples are speaking languages they had never learned in all their life. Now, the reason today that Christians all over the world celebrate Pentecost is because Pentecost was the day when the Holy Spirit came to earth. And the Holy Spirit came to earth in a special way to indwell Christian people, to, in, to indwell people who had placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake about it. The Spirit of God had been around long before Pentecost, In fact, in the second verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse two, we read this phrase, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters as God was creating the world. And here are these early waters out there. And the spirit of God is hovering over those waters. In the old Testament, we read about the spirit of God coming upon David, the spirit of God coming upon Elijah, the spirit of God coming upon Elisha. And so the spirit of God had been around from the beginning, from eternity past. But at Pentecost, it was different. Because at Pentecost, it was not just the Spirit with a person or on a person or empowering a person. It was the Spirit of God now coming to live on the inside of a believer. Now, we're in Acts. Turn back just a few pages to John chapter 14 because I want us to see how just on the night before he was crucified, Jesus was telling his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, beginning in verse 15, he says this, if you love me, Keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus was saying to Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and and Thomas and all the other disciples, he was saying for these years and even now, I'm with you, here I am in the flesh, but there's coming a day when it'll be better than that, when I will live in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And so on the one hand, it is God sending the Holy Spirit On the other hand, the Holy Spirit is Jesus himself in a different form, in in a spirit form. Look in verse number 26 of this same 14th chapter. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Sometime in our lives today, We're going through a situation, and the Holy Spirit will just bring to our mind a promise from God, bring to our mind something that God has taught us. I was in a waiting room not too long ago, in a doctor's room, had had a test and was there to meet with the doctor and get the result of the test, and I was a little bit nervous, naturally, wanting to know what the result would be. Thankfully, it came back fine, but as I was just sitting there, a little bit nervous, trusting God, but a little bit nervous, a scripture verse came to my mind, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I'm God. Now, had that verse get in my mind? The Holy Spirit brought it to my remembrance. And that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying to his disciples, very soon, I'm going to come and live on the inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when I do, I will bring to your memory, to your remembrance, things that you've already learned. Now, look in chapter 16. Because Jesus is expounding on this idea. And in verse number five, he says, but now I go, to, go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, you can imagine how sad the disciples were. They've been with Jesus three years. And now he keeps saying, I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave you. That would have been devastating news. And they, like we, would, they were very sad about this. But in verse seven, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then in verse 13, he says, "'When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, "'he will guide you into all truth.'" for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And so all these promises that Jesus is making to his disciples there in the upper room, the Holy Spirit is coming, he's gonna bring things to your memory, he's gonna guide you into all truth, he's gonna help you know what you should do in life, he's gonna help you to make the right decision. At Pentecost, all of these promises were fulfilled. Now interestingly, the word, the word Pentecost literally means 50 And it is a feast that took place 50 days after Passover. And so 50 days after this crucifixion and the whole Passover weekend that Jesus had is when Pentecost took place. It took place seven weeks to the day after Easter. And so we know that for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus was on the earth with those disciples. And then in Acts chapter one, we read that he went back to heaven, the ascension. And for the next 10 days, these had to be the hardest 10 days the disciples ever have. They did not have Jesus in the flesh, and they did not yet have the Holy Spirit living in them. But on the 50th day on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit lived uh, and, and dwelt and empowered these believers in an absolutely unbelievable way. Now, sometimes you'll hear somebody pray and they'll say, God, I just pray for another Pentecost. I just pray, Lord, that just like what you did in Acts chapter 2, I just pray for another Pentecost. And while that is a genuine prayer and a well-intentioned prayer and God understands the heart behind that prayer, strictly speaking, we need to understand there will never be another Pentecost. There will never be another day like this day. This is the birthday of the church. This is when the Holy Spirit came to the earth. And this will never happen quite like this again. But the spirit of Pentecost, that is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I asked you earlier, as you think about your life, how much spiritual power do you have in your life? Well, God wants us to have this type of power. And we read, if we read the whole chapter, that Peter got up and preached a sermon. He gave the invitation. 3,000 people were saved and baptized on the spot. And it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And so we're thinking today about how we can have the spirit of Pentecost in our lives. You know, I was thinking this week about a verse in John chapter 7. Jesus said, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you, is that your experience at this time in your, right now in your life? Do you just feel like, you know, I'm so close to God. I'm so connected to God. It's like, I've just, I've just got a river flowing out of me. I've just got strength and power flowing out of me. Sometimes I've noticed that that river of living water can become like a little trickle. And uh, sometimes that's that's what happens, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the question is, is there anything that we can do to experience the power of Pentecost in our lives today and the spirit of Pentecost in our lives today? And I believe certainly the answer to that question is yes. Now, back in Acts, I want us to think, first of all, that these disciples on this particular day were in the right place They were in the right place. Let me give you a verse. You can just jot it down. I'll read it to you. In Luke chapter 24, and in verse number 49, Jesus said these words to the disciples just before he returned to heaven. He said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem... Until you are endued with power from on high. Stay in the city of Jerusalem. So, why would he have told them that? Think about this the disciples weren't from Jerusalem, they were from Galilee, 70 miles to the north. I mean, had I been them, and probably they thought themselves after the resurrection, after the ascension, they probably thought, well, we might as well go back to Galilee now to our family and to our friends and to our home and to our jobs. But Jesus had given a clear command you stay in Jerusalem. You stay, you tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so we say of these early disciples, they were in the right place. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do. And it says to me, if we're going to experience this type of power in our lives, we must be obedient to whatever it is that God has told us to do. God does not bless disobedience. God does not bless it when we don't do what he tells us to do. Now, in Acts chapter 1, go back to chapter 1 and look in verse 12, because this is after the ascension. Jesus now has gone up to heaven. And in verse 12, we read, Then they, that is these disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. This is the same upper room. That they had been with Jesus on that Thursday night before the crucifixion. And he had instituted the Lord's Supper. They had the Last Supper. This was kind of their headquarters in Jerusalem. And in verse 13, we read a name, we read the names of these 11 disciples. Judas by this time has committed suicide. And in verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord and supplication with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And with his brothers, And so here are these disciples. they're in the upper room, they're in the right place, and not only are they in the right place, they're doing the right thing. What are they doing? They're praying. They're having a prayer meeting. In fact, in verse 15, it's not just these 11. We read Mary, the mother of Jesus, his brothers, but in verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So there are approximately 120 people in the upper room, and what are they doing? They're praying. We would say it this way. They're doing the right thing. Now, every one of us here wants to have power in our lives, power to resist temptation. Power to overcome obstacles and challenges. Power to, to deal with difficult people. We want to have power in our lives. But the power comes when we're in the right place and we're doing the right thing. I was reading even last night a quote about, from John Wesley, one of my favorite characters in church history, the founder of the Methodist Church. And John Wesley said of prayer, prayer is our spiritual breath. It's the breath of our spiritual lives. I read last night something about Wesley. I did not know that for years, he made it his practice to wake up every morning at four o'clock and to pray until eight o'clock in the morning. He prayed for four hours before he began his day. And then when he would begin his day, every hour on the hour, he would pray a brief prayer. As he got older, that four hours of prayer, turned into eight hours of prayer. He spent what we would call an entire work day praying. You say, well, I don't guess he had time to do anything else. Well, he did a lot else. But Wesley had learned that prayer is where the power is. I know most of us are not going to pray. I don't pray four hours a day. And most of us don't. But we have to look at our lives and ask, am I spending any time praying? And am I spending any time putting my putting myself in a position to receive the Spirit's power in a special way in my life. But the interesting thing, and what I'm really getting to this morning, not only were they in the right place, and not only were they doing the right thing, they were doing the right thing with the right heart attitude. Go back again. Chapter 2, verse 1. I want us to kind of focus on this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, Luke, who wrote this, could have just said, they were all in one place. Well, we would have got it in our mind. They're in the upper room. But he he said more than that. He said, they weren't just in one place, but they were all with one accord in one place. That is, their hearts were together. Most of the translations say, they were together in one place. I've heard some preachers say it this way. They were together together. They were together physically, certainly, but they were also together spiritually and in their minds and in their hearts. Now, think about this. Here are a group of disciples receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost is not gonna happen again, but for those of us who are saved, we already have the Spirit of God living in our hearts. The question is, are we walking in the fullness of that? Are we experiencing the fullness of that power? Or are we doing something that is preventing the Spirit of God from working through us? Well, these disciples had nothing preventing the Spirit of God. They were in one accord, in one place. It would be possible. I, don't, I hope it's not. But it would be possible in a room with this many people today, for you to be sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. And you say, John, here we are at First Baptist Church on a Sunday morning. We're together on the same pew. And yet you're not together in your heart. Maybe you had an argument at breakfast. Maybe you had an argument yesterday. Maybe something happened on the way to church this morning. You say, yeah, we're together, but we're not really together. Now, as I look around, everybody looks together together. Everybody looks happy together. I'm just saying it would be possible for there to be something in between you, even in the person you're sitting next to. And you're together on the one hand, but you're not together in your heart because something has happened, something was done or said, and what has it done? It has rubbed you the wrong way, it has offended you, and that offense, instead of just dealing with it, and before God forgiving that person and letting that go, it has taken root, and now it's a bitter root And that bitter root in your heart right now makes you say what that man's saying is right. I'm together with her. I'm together with him. I'm together with them. We're together on the same pew, but we're not together in our hearts. And I'm saying when we get like that, it blocks the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I was out watering my yard the other night, just kind of with a hose, watering the foundation, watering the grass, and I turned around a corner. And when I did, I noticed there was no water coming out of the hose and i knew why when i turned around and looked about 20 feet up there was a kink in the hose from where i had turned the corner so i had to go up and let the get the kink out of the hose and when i did that the water started flowing out that's exactly what happens in our lives sometimes there's a kink and many times it's bitterness it's anger it's resentment it's unforgiveness and there's a kink in the line up here But what it's doing, it's it's, it's preventing the flow of the water from coming out down here. Instead of there, as Jesus said, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Instead of there being rivers of living water, what is there? There's a slow trickle. Or maybe there's not anything at all. Because we have blocked the flow of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm saying to you today is, on this day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came into these believers' lives and fill them with their spirit. They had no such kink. They had no such blockage. They had no such thing preventing the spirit from doing what he did. And if you think about, you still listen, by the way, say amen. amen. As you think about these disciples and these 120 people in that room, they had every reason in the world to have resentment towards each other, to have bitterness towards each other, to have unforgiveness towards each other. You say, what do you mean? I'm just, just use your brain. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's in the room with all these disciples. It would have been easy for Mary to have looked at this group of disciples and to have thought to herself, you guys say that you're followers of my son. Your ultimate loyalty is supposed to be to my son. But on the night that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, every single one of you fled and you ran away. When Jesus needed you the most, you weren't there. She could have had a bitter root. You know, sometimes when somebody does something against our family, it's worse than if they do it against us. And a bitter root can take hold. It would have been easy for some of the disciples, say Matthew and Andrew and Thomas and Peter, it would have been easy for them to have looked at James and John and to have remembered that day when James and John went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're gonna ask you to do a favor for us. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do? And they said, what we want you to do when you set up your kingdom in heaven, we want you to let one of us sit on your right hand and the other to sit on your left hand. And Jesus said, who sits where is the Father's decision. It's not mine to make. But those other disciples could've looked at James and John and said, who do you think you are? Asking Jesus to give you the best seats in heaven. I mean, they could've had that bitter root. All the people in the room could've looked at Simon Peter and they could've thought, do you think you are always being our leader, always being our spokesman? Anytime anybody asks a question, you're the one who answers. who do you think you are, Peter? In the garden of Gethsemane, less than two months ago, when Jesus was arrested, you lost your temper and you cut a man's ear off. What kind of spiritual leader are you? And if that's not bad enough, a few hours later, you denied that you even knew Jesus. You see, they could have been thinking these types of things. And what would that have done? It would have blocked the flow of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, I'm saying those 120 people in that upper room had nothing in their heart that would prevent the Holy Spirit of God from working in them. And yeah, hey folks, look, we live in the the real world just like they did, but we do too. And sometimes something is said Sometimes, sometimes something is unintentionally said. Somebody offended us. They hurt our feelings. They rubbed us the wrong way. They criticized us. They didn't even mean to. It just came out wrong. Sometimes it's intentional. But if we're not careful, we can become bitter. Sometimes it's, it's, it's more than that. It's something far more serious. Maybe someone has hurt you or someone has betrayed you or something. And, and, and that, that offense has not been dealt with. And that offense now is still in you and it's taking root in your heart. That's why in Hebrews we read about the the bitter root that can take place in our heart. And that bitter root produces bitter fruit. But we have to deal with the root. Bitterness, I've written this in my notes, anger, resentfulness, and unforgiveness blocks the flow of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And I'm saying, and you don't need me to tell you, it can happen to any one of us. And I'm saying it probably has happened to all of, maybe it happened last week in your life, maybe it happened over the weekend. I can remember a few years ago, I was speaking at something here in Pasadena and I got finished and I was walking back to my car in the parking lot and a man walked out the door with me. He said, he introduced himself, I didn't know him. He said, "Uh, you mind if I walk to your car with you? I said, no, that'd be good. And he said, I just want you to know that I enjoyed your sermon today. And I said, well, I really appreciate that. Made me feel good. He kind of patting me on the back. And he said, you remind me of a certain preacher. And he told me the preacher's name. Well, it happened to be one of my favorite preachers. And I said, well, I appreciate that. I take that as a compliment. And then that man started telling me everything he did not like about that preacher. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, wait a second. You just said I remind you of him and you don't like him. This is a backwards. You know, when somebody tells you after your Sunday school class, that was a great lesson, but you just know it's coming. They're setting you up for something. And then this man started complaining. He didn't go to church here, some other church, criticizing his pastor, criticizing his staff, criticizing the leaders in the church, criticizing everything about the church. And I could tell he wasn't happy in his church. And so I thought, well, maybe I should just invite him to First Baptist and you know, he's not happy where he is. And then I thought, don't do that. He might show up and infect the place with that (laughs) negativity. But what I'm saying is, when I got in my car that day and drove off, I said to myself, what was that man really saying? Was he saying he liked me? Or was he saying he didn't like me and he did it in a passive aggressive way? What what was, what was he saying? Well, I never did know, but I knew this. I couldn't let, if it was the negative, I couldn't let that take root in my heart because bitterness and resentment and anger and unforgiveness and somebody has rubbed you the wrong way And somebody has done something that you didn't think was right. And maybe it wasn't right. And now you're holding a grudge. And what's happening is it's put a kink in your heart. It's put a kink between you and God. And what was at one time a rushing mighty river, as we sang about a few minutes ago, is now a slow trickle. And so the question is, What do we do about this? I mean, how do we deal? I'm not asking today, but if I were to ask how many of you sometimes struggle or maybe even are struggling right now with what I'm talking about today, a grudge, bitterness, all these things, I would imagine 75 or 80% of the people in this room would probably raise their hand. And so the question is, what do we do about it? Well, I I tell you what, we we have to deal with it. And I want to give you today, as we close this message, I want to give you three phrases that you can, that you can memorize. And I think three phrases that will help you to deal with this grudge so that you can get it out of your heart and so that the Holy Spirit can come uh, in, in fullness and in power to minister in your life. The first thing, you know, this is not one of the phrases, but I'll just, I want to make this statement. I didn't say this at 9.30 because I was running out of time, but I want to say this in this service. In the grand scheme of things, now this is not one of the things we're memorizing, but I just want to say this. In the grand scheme of things, from the perspective of life and eternity, you have to develop an attitude that says it doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. If somebody has hurt you, that does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't I'm just saying from the grand scheme of life and eternity and God and how you deal with this, you have to get to a place where you say, you know what, compared to a, to a, to a life and death situation, this really doesn't matter. But now for the three phrases that I want us to memorize today. Number one, when we think about what has been said or done and it's offended us and we've got to deal with it. How can I, help me deal with it, John. I want to deal with it. Here's how you deal with it. Number one, you remember this. It's not worth it. No matter what has happened or what is happening, it is not worth turning a mighty rushing river into a slow trickle. It's just not worth it. The second thing to remember is life's too short. Life is as is, is far is, is much, much too short to deal with this. And then the third thing is to say, I choose to forgive. So I want you just to hear these. Let me just say those phrases. It's not worth it. Life's too short. I choose to forgive. Say that with me. It's not worth it. Life's too short. I choose to forgive. Say it again. There's something about those things. It's not, worth, it's not worth what it's doing to me. Life is, life is too short for this. I have a friend, I, a friend in our church. His name's Marshall. Her name's Ashley. I did their wedding in 2009. I love this couple. A few years after the wedding, she developed Hodgkin's lymphoma at 28 years of age. After the diagnosis, she went through six months of chemo. It appeared that it was gone. Two years later, it came back. She had to have stem cell transplant. Thank God that took care of it, and she's been cancer-free for three and a half years. She's in her 30s now. I was thinking about them yesterday, and I, I just thought about what I was preaching today. I thought, you know, 28 years of age going through chemo early 30s going through stem cell research I bet if we could have talked to Ashley when she was going through that and Marshall when she was when he was watching her go through that they would have said you know that's why I was saying a moment ago that thing that has just eaten your lunch and taken your joy in the grand scheme of life and eternity it doesn't matter I called Marshall yesterday he's a pilot for Southwest Airlines and I said, man, I'm thinking about you and Ashley today. I'm thinking about what y'all went through. We talked about that. He was in uh, St. Louis yesterday evening, getting ready to fly today to Chicago and some other places. And he said, you know, John, that experience forever changed our perspective of life. We talked about that. I called Ashley later in the day. I said, Ashley, I called Marshall and we were talking. I said, I've been thinking about you guys since I woke up this morning. I'm just so thankful for what God brought you through. And, how, you know, she's doing great. And she said, same thing, Mark. She said, you know, John, that, that situation we went through up there, she said my, they had both told me, they said, you know, before they do that stem cell, Marshall said, you know what they do, John, to your immune system? It's like on a computer when, they, when you hit Control-Alt-Delete. It just deletes your immune system. And, and so much so that after she completed the stem cell, she had to, get all of her baby shots all over again. In her 30s, she's getting all the shots. She told me yesterday, she said, I had no idea how many shots I got when I was a baby till I got them in my 30s. And she said, and he said, the experience we went through completely changed our perspective on life. I said to Ashley yesterday, I said, Ashley, after having been through something like that, do you ever find yourself worrying about something or getting upset about something or holding a grudge? Or... She said, "Well, you know that's an interesting question." She said, "Sometimes I do find myself kind of doing like I did before I had this experience. She said, "But the difference now is that I always have a quick reminder of where God's what God's brought me from." She said, "Our baby was only a few months old when I was diagnosed with this. And she said, when I start getting worried about something upsets me, or I get worried. She said, I look at my child and I just think if it weren't for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be here. See, that's why I'm saying to you today, that thing, and it happens to all of us, we're human, that is eating your lunch and has rubbed you the wrong way and it just puts you in a bad mood. I'm telling you friend, in the grand scheme of life and eternity, it just doesn't matter. 2000 years from now when we're all in heaven and meeting all these people in the Bible, I'm telling you it just it does, it won't matter. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's not worth what it's doing to you. I sometimes tell myself that it's not worth it. Life's too short. It could end just like that. We have to make a choice to forgive so that the line between us and God can be open, and so that his Holy Spirit has the freedom to flow through us like a mighty rushing river. Amen? And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed today, maybe today you're saying, John, this was a good sermon for me. Maybe not a good sermon, but a good sermon for me. Because what you're talking about is what I'm struggling with. Well, friend, I want to... Now, you've heard the sermon. You agree to everything I've said. It's right out of the Bible. Let's take it one step further and let's deal with that grudge or that bitter root. Would you just say to God today, God, whatever has happened or whatever is happening is not worth what it's doing to me in the negative. It's not worth it. God, secondly... Life is too short. But by the grace of God, I'm not at MD Anderson today having a stem cell transplant. God, if it weren't for your grace, I may have already died. I'm upset about something that in the grand scheme of things really doesn't matter. It won't matter 10,000 years from now. And so God, today what I've got to do is deal with this And I want to deal with it, first of all, by asking you to forgive me for holding a grudge. For a bitter root. For a bad attitude. God, I ask you to forgive me. Listen to me, friend. If you have any of that in you today, you don't need to ask God to fill you with the Spirit because he will not. You first need to ask God to forgive you of that sin of bitterness. And once he cleanses you, then he can fill you. God doesn't fill dirty vessels. He doesn't, water doesn't run through a kinked hose. You have to ask God to forgive you first for how you've responded in your heart to whatever has happened. That doesn't mean that what happened wasn't wrong. If it hurt you, it was wrong. But now it's a double wrong because you're not, you're dealing with it wrong. God, forgive me. For holding a grudge and for having a bad attitude. Now, let's take it one step further. God, thank you for forgiving me. And now I ask you, I, I'm asking you to forgive that person for whatever they did to me. I'm asking you to forgive them. And God, by an act of my will, I choose to forgive them. I let it go. Doesn't mean it was right. Does it it mean that the relationship will always be reconciled? Sometimes that's just not possible for different reasons. But it can be reconciled in my heart. I can be together with them in my heart. Even if maybe they've already died. Maybe, maybe, Maybe they live in a different place. Maybe they don't want to be with you. Maybe it's not safe. There could be a lot of extreme reasons why... That would happen. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what's happening in your heart. God, I forgive them in my heart. I let it go. It's not worth what it's doing to me in the negative. Would it be great today if all the people in this service could just be loosed? If all the hoses could be unkinked and the water could flow and the spirit could flow. And there would be a power in our life and a power in our witness. And what these students are doing in their schools and sharing their faith and inviting their friends to church, we could all do that in our spheres of influence. God, I forgive them. And as far as I'm concerned, it's over. It ends today. Now, before we close today, there's some who need to be saved. You know, in the first service, we saw a 32-year-old man get saved. We saw another man get saved. It was his first time to come to church here. We saw a man get saved in the first service who, listen to his testimony, he walked in the church today an atheist. He heard the message, he got saved, and he walked out a child of God. That's about as extreme as it gets right there. He walked in the church today, not even believing in God. And he walked out with Jesus in his heart. That's the power of the gospel. Today, some in this service, there's no doubt in my mind, there's some who need to be saved. You say, John, help me pray that prayer. I'll help you. Pray this right now. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Put me on a new path. Begin to make me the person that you want me to be.